Well, hello and welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we re-explore Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars and I forgot that for a moment. I, I almost forgot the intro. In fact, I think I said it slightly wrong. Well, for a, a look behind the curtain, we've never done this before, but this is our <laughs> second episode in, in, in a day. We're recording two on the same day. Mm. So we've only done this, what, three hours ago? We'd already done an intro and now we've both forgotten it already. I know. I mean, it's it's less... It's probably about, maybe just less than an hour since we last spoke to each other. Yeah. And... I think clearly it's too much PJ for one day. I am a lot. I know, I know. <laughs> PJ, PJ, tone it down, Jesus. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm just pepped up on uh, on raw JLA energy. Like uh, I'm, 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 I'm buzzing. I'm quivering, PJ. I'm excited. No, I am excited. This is a really good issue we're looking at today. Is <laughs> I feel, um, I feel I have to do like the obligatory kind of like. Hey, how you doing? You know, what have you been up to since last we spoke? Sort of thing, but um, not much is is probably the answer. Do you know what? There is a difference because I've had lunch since we recorded our last episode, and and when we recorded our first episode today, my wife Lisa, she was at the shops. Now, wow. as we record this one, she is in another room watching a terrible Italian horror movie. So there you go. Okay, so a bit of a bit of um, mid-afternoon kind of um, what was it uh, giallo, kind of like uh, Italian slasher kind of. Uh, it, I think it's some kind of demonic possession film. Oh, nice! It's not called Demons, is it? No, no. I think it's uh, the Binding. I think she said was the title, or oh. something like that. You know, I, it's it's rare that we get to say it, but I think of the two of you, I, I feel your activities this afternoon are more wholesome. Oh, she's a huge horror fan. Basically, uh, if I'm doing something and she's got time to herself, she spends her time scrolling through Netflix or any of the other streaming services we've got looking for terrible horror movies that she hasn't seen. Wow. Okay. Uh, okay, that's kind of like terrifying. I kind of assume that nothing bad ever happens while the sun is shining. And um, it's actually an oddly, an oddly nice day right now what's it like in cardiff it's yeah it's very pleasant the sun's out it's it's not too cool it's uh there's, it's all right there's no like um ominous impending eclipse or while lisa performs her craven rituals i mean i'll tell you now at the same time she's watching these terrible horror films she is also playing animal crossing so <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird dichotomy at work here it's <laughs> Well, um, by contrast, uh, Lucy is in the same room uh, and she's working on a, I mean, she's triple tasking, which is quite impressive. She's working on a cross stitch. She's watching slash, uh, slash listening to a James Bond podcast and she's waiting for her Steam account to unlock. She's got a timer on the screen uh, so she can attempt to log back in and play The Sims. <laughs> Wait, t- so... Does it time her out? Does it go, no, you've had enough Sims now, you have to take a break? Yeah, it's one, it's one of those things, <laughs> yeah, like an intervention. <laughs> uh, it's one, she, she's smiling, no, it's fine. She's holding a needle, so I'll try not to annoy her too much. Um, 
But uh, no, it's like she she signed in like once, like ten years ago, on her device, and then had to perform an update and had to sign out, and then it's like, oh, you actually need to sign back in again, and then I think it didn't like her password or something, so now it's like you need to you need to go sit on the naughty chair for like an hour before you can even try again. <laughs> oh dear. Whereas PJ, you never need to sign into a book. I mean, unless it's a library book. Unless it's a library book, or unless it, well, yeah, or unless it's some kind of digital book that a future person might read. Or a present day person. Well, not in my worldview. Um, <laughs> you have to you have to sign into Comixology to read your books there. That is true. That is true. And um, as we discussed in our last episode, uh, not uh, seventy five minutes ago, uh, you recently were in that world when you explored Genesis. Oh, do the... we have to bring that up again, PJ? Don't downplay your achievements. Like <laughs> you know. We may never be able to climb, be the first to climb Everest again. That's been done. But you may be the first person to ever actually read all of Genesis. Ever. On Comixology. There are those poor saps who bought it when it first came out who didn't know what they were in for. I wonder if they actually read it. Like, is it possible that looking back, it was all just some massive hoax? And even now you're perpetuating it by pretending that Genesis actually exists. I've read those books and I hated every second of it. How dare you trivialise my experience? Your pain is real. You need to <laughs> hang on to your pain. It's all you have. It is. <laughs> well, uh, I guess the flip side to your suffering is that we're about to go into much kind of sweeter territory. Because oh, boy, are we. All the distractions are out of the way, PJ. It's just Rock of Ages now. Pure Rock of Ages for five whole scrumptious issues. And I'll, I'll tell you something else, PJ, that's actually quite shocking. We have finally stepped outside the time warp. That is September 1997. Uh, we've stopped covering issues from that month. Yeah, oh. I feel like you... I feel, It feels like 18 years that we've been in September 1997. Like, a clearly an incredibly productive month. And also just our weird, the weird way we're publishing this show. Finally, we're in October. 1997. Yeah, that's true, and we're never going back to that September. Wait, when was Earth 2 published? That was year 2000, wasn't it? Oh, hang on. He said, checking. Where is it? Yes, January 2000. Okay, okay. cool. Yeah, we're never going back to September 97. No. Wow. What a... a, Hey, and I guess it's 23 years to the day that this this issue came out. Well, not to the day. Let's just say. Let's say it's the day. To the month. <laughs> Happy birthday, JLA issue eleven. Happy birthday, JLA eleven. I mean, September nineteen ninety seven was not an easy time for a young John, as I was making the transition to secondary school and young manhood. Um, so <laughs> it's nice to know that something good was happening in the world. And young PJ was entering his first year of GCSEs and just thinking, well. I'm glad I'm not doing geography anymore, at least. <laughs> yes, and as a young John was uh, starting secondary school, a young PJ was being handed his gold watch for 50 years loyal service. <laughs> <laughs> Down the mines. Oh, God. Feels like it sometimes. PJ, PJ, um, make yourself feel young again. 
where are we? What's what? You know, should we just dive into it? Yes, let's uh, let's start with the cover because before we do the Ooh. the where we are and everything, because I love this cover. It's so good, Howard Porter and and his uh, inker and colorist, who we'll get to in a minute when we hit the credits page that I don't have open right now. Uh, <laughs> they've done such a good job on this cover; it's a stunner. And again, it's. A slightly unlikely pairing. It's uh, two characters who I think work very well together, but you, you know, so rarely see them as a duo. It's Superman and Jean. Yeah, and uh, they are struggling. They're trapped in a maze that their poses make it look like it's constricting on them. It's a very complex, sort of pale, greeny, bluey walled maze, and they can't do anything about it. Jean looks panicked. Superman looks angry. And then looming above the maze, larger than life, are Lex Luthor and the Joker. I mean, it's a classic combo. It is. It's it's a regular world's finest team up, Luthor and the Joker. They uh, they often do. I, I don't think they're a couple who ever particularly like to team up. But we'll we'll no. get to that, I guess. Have you Again, have you have you seen? I bet you have, PJ, because you 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 see all um, from atop your panopticon. But um, have you seen the Batman Superman original animated movie sort of thing? Uh, the crossover between their two cartoons. Yeah, world's finest. That was actually yeah. three, three episodes of Superman the animated series stitched together. Right, that makes sense. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. It's- it's so good. If you want to see like a fun team up between the Joker and Lex Luthor, I mean, that's an excellent touch point, I'd say. Yeah, completely agree. It's also just a brilliant uh, take on the first meeting between Batman and Superman. Um, in terms of general continuity, PJ, because I know um, I know the DC universe has been kind of chopped and changed quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, and and you don't need to know a lot of continuity to enjoy this issue but is it pretty much established at this point that like in in this time in this place that joker and luther had had dealings together yeah they've before. worked together before um there were a couple of world's finest mini series that came out before jla which had them uh teaming up a particularly good one that um i can't remember who wrote it but it was drawn by steve rude i believe uh that i think is is a very good it's sort of set in the early days of superman and batman um they it's not their first meeting but it is like year one year two era for both of them and that features a really fun joker lex luthor team up because uh crisis on infinite earths was 1986 yes yes okay and that was the first major reshaping of the DC universe. Like, am I? Is that a safe statement? Yeah, say? it's yeah, it is. It's the first time they um, did a big reboot. There had been small things like when they sort of established that uh, when they started introducing the Silver Age versions of Flash, Green Lantern, and all of that, because yeah. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman had just been published continuously. There was just some little tweaks here and there to say, oh no, these are different versions now than the ones you read before, even though the adventures were all the same. But Crisis was the first time they did like a hard, everything starts over, everything's different now for the it, whole is, universe. 
because this is the mind-boggling thing to me, is the idea that, because I was born in 1986, and I would have been uh, 11 when this came out. As I said, starting secondary school. Wait, who were you a reboot of then? If you were born in 86? (laughs) Um, Who died in 86? Who would be a good (laughs) candidate? I'll have to give that some thought. Um, But this is the the mind-blowing thing, is the idea that really, in this, you think of the 90s as being like quite late down the comics road, but the DC universe as we're currently experiencing it in these pages was only like 11 years old. Yeah. In its current form, which is mad. That is insane to think about because we're also at the point roughly where they were saying Batman and Superman had been around for about 10 years. And I guess they actually kind of had been. I mean, comics continuity is hard at the best of times. DC continuity is nightmarish. Like... It's almost best not to try. Well, that's why they keep having to reboot. I, I remember in the mid-2000s, around the time of Final Crisis and everything, I was collecting a few DC books. And, and even in those books, things were starting to get confusing. <laughs> right. You do get these wonderful... Well, I guess I say wonderful. Either wonderful or insane moments where it's almost like a bit of meta-storytelling, where you might have a character who's continuity is just so messed up and almost like irreversibly messed up now that the character is almost self-aware of it like um you know um I'm, oh god is it something like power girl and Hawkman? like both of them like yes n- neither of their continuities make an awful lot of sense now because it's been retconned or rebooted so many times Yes, I have no idea where either of them are in present-day DC Universe, but I know there was a good 10 years or so where no one at DC was allowed to touch Hawkman. I mean, that's insane. Can you imagine? It's, yeah, it's so weird. And then I think it, I think it was Jeff Johns who came along and went, look, can I do Hawkman? I've got an idea how to fix him. And he did, to be fair, do a pretty good job of it. But I, I, as I say, no idea where he is now. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's so weird. I mean, like, I, I guess it's only going to get stranger for you and I, PJ, as we get older. You know, we're already on our way to being old men. But I think of something like Crisis on Infinite Earths as being a very, very, very long time ago. Like, I think, oh, that's something that happened in, you know, the Paleolithic era. You know, just mm-hmm. just ancient. Yeah. But then, of course, you think, well, it's not really that long ago. I mean, it's it's kind of in my lifetime. It is my lifetime. Um, and then to go back to this point in time and think, well, God, it was only like 11 years prior. I mean, you think back to 11 years from the day of recording. I mean, we're talking like 2009. I mean, civil Marvel's Civil War is older than that. Oh, my God. Don't say that. That's, that's mad, isn't it? Like, this book is closer to Crisis on Infinite Earths than we currently are to Civil War. Right, well, thank you. You've ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. That was meant to be me helping you feel young again. And, uh, <laughs> no, you've just uh, made me feel even older. <laughs> okay, wow, God. Mind mind blown. Uh, but yeah, sorry, PJ. It is a fantastic cover, actually. And I think it's it's Joker in particular, I think, on it looks really menacing. And and I, I think I think I get the feeling Porter enjoys drawing the Joker. Do you do you imagine 
there's that thing at Marvel where apparently being able to draw the thing is seen as a rite of passage. Apparently, like that's okay. like the real measure. I, I've heard it. This could not be true. This could just be like urban legend. But the urban legend is that any mar any artist aspiring to work on a big Marvel book, one of the tests is how do you draw the thing. Almost even 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 if you're not on a title where the thing will appear, it's kind of like that. That is the measure. And I wonder if like getting the opportunity to draw the Joker is kind of like being a, giving a ticket to the big show. You know, like this is your I don't know. This is what everyone wants. Everyone wants like that big kind of show scupper moment with the Joker. Often as a detriment, actually. Yeah, true. Well, I think <laughs> what I really love about this cover as well, though, is it's it's the Joker's on the cover and Batman isn't. It's yeah, Batman's in the book, but it's not a Batman book, and he's not on the cover. And but Joker having Joker on a cover with the Martian Manhunter feels like a really unusual thing to me. That is a that is a very good point, actually. I. Yeah, because again, they are directly referencing something that happens in the book. Yeah. But at the same time, I admire their restraint in not doing the obvious, which would like putting Wonder Woman on the cover of the trade. Yeah. And putting Batman on the cover of a scene that he ultimately isn't part of. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Yeah, we're learning something. Um, but PJ, uh, with the cover in mind and done, what's happening in this issue well uh where we are at the moment is our league which uh unfortunately no longer has one woman in it because she did uh but we do have aztec and green arrow both as members now the league has just fought holographic evil versions of the big seven uh defeating them quite handily but there was a lot of devastation and destruction uh in the process the League don't know who created the holographic duplicates. We do. Lex Luthor has formed a new Injustice gang and beamed them down from a satellite that they have psychically hidden from Green Lantern uh, because he's got some kind of psychic alien in the basement of his satellite. Does a ba- does a satellite have a basement? Because it's, uh, it's not underground. N- no. Ma- mm. Maybe like... Gra- like Maybe like the ground floor on a satellite is in the middle. And then anything below it is like minus one, minus two, minus three. Even though you could have just started numbering it it's, at it's zero. Pretty arbitrary. Uh, yeah, it's completely arbitrary as well. But I think I think you're you're safe in saying that. Uh, but yeah, so the league were like, oh, where are these evil people? League people coming from? I don't know. Oh, look, we've got to do this crossover. Let's go do that. But then we'll just we'll just get it done, and then we'll get back uh, to this story. And and if you had you know, been reading this monthly or, you know, you may have been forgiven for thinking that, oh my God, I'm looking at the splash page that concluded the previous issue. Oh my God, it's heading directly towards Earth. Something is coming. But then we completely ignore that because it was resolved off page. And, oh, sorry, PJ, sorry, flashbacks. Okay, we we open in this sinister satellite can i just um, say i love this opening there are a few moments in this issue i I just i I absolutely love the opening and the closing it's up there and um yeah so continue i love this opening well we have lex luther in his satellite standing in a kind of politician power stance that is the tory power stance 
It's for Tory parties. It's the one where a few years ago you couldn't have a photo of a of a Tory MP without them stood with their legs splayed. Because they, you can't have imagined they had like a motivational speaker coming to the office and say, this is how you command respect. And yeah. You've got to have your legs super wide. That's exactly what it was. They were trained to do that because it exudes power, apparently. And it's like, nope, you just likely you're about to do the splits and it's going wrong. Um, good God, that's depressing. Um, but <laughs> Lex Luthor is standing on a gang plank kind of viewing platform above, I'm hoping, a glass floor. It's some uh, kind of are- see-through window thing, yeah. Yeah, we are looking down on planet Earth. Like, he is literally on top of the world right now. He is astride the continents. And I would say that, much like I feel Grant Morrison... It's so interesting, because I think he's very good at the psychology of Superman and Batman. I think there's two, two characters that he's done some wonderful work with. And then I also... You can tell how much he gets Lex Luthor. Yep. I mean, also the Joker. I mean, again, he, he and of course he's 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 got a, he's bald, isn't he? Yeah. You know, I I think it's hard not to see a little bit of Grant Morrison in Lex Luthor here. <laughs> I've never seen Grant Morrison's house. I don't know if he happens to have a sinister viewing platform. I would not be surprised, but. Well, yeah. Um, although, if it's interesting, how it might just be over a swimming pool or something. But <laughs> <laughs> he's painted the floor to look like like the Earth, and then he just kind of stands and stares down in a menacing fashion, legs ever so slightly too wide. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't imagine Grant Morrison would do the Tory power stance. We are inside Lex Luthor's head right now as he gazes down on the world, and PJ. What is he thinking? So, and it's a lovely, lovely piece of narration in these uh, in these caption boxes. It starts thus. There have been Justice Leagues before, of course. I've indulged their existence. Let them conduct their colourful public brawls like drunken sailors with a Hollywood budget. Let them play their games. I could have destroyed any of those organisations at any time. I chose not to. Until now, until Superman. I glorious. It's, it's so good, and this is why. This is why I love Grant Morrison's version of Lex Luthor, because he makes him such a. It'd be so easy to fall into a trap of just making him a cackling villain. Yeah, you know, and, and yeah, he's intelligent, but it's a way. The thing I love about his characterization is how. He's he's incredibly smart, he's incredibly competent, he's incredibly powerful. But he is also insane in his own little way. And it's for, and it's this obsession with Superman. Yeah. Like this absolute obsession, which he can't it's almost like he can't see what he's doing. It's like he can't see his own mental tics about how he is completely obsessed with him. Well, exactly. He's it's he thinks everything he he thinks he's he knows he's obsessed with superman everything he does is about superman so he thinks in turn that everything superman does must also be about him and you get a little bit more of him talking about how he he would have let this new jla go he he wouldn't care except for superman and then more 
dialogue here is lifted straight from the comic. I take his leadership of this preposterous team of alpha males as a direct challenge, a throwing down of the gauntlet, a clear and deliberate escalation of the hostilities between us. Whereas Superman, Luther wasn't anywhere near his mind when he joined the league. <laughs> it's kind of like the twisted psychology of a stalker. Yeah. Because, as you say, like, is yeah, he's just not thinking about Lex Luthor, and that, and and yet Lex Luthor, who feels he is independent and free, and you know, completely his own man, doesn't seem to realize the irony that all he's doing is mimicking Superman. Like, yeah, yeah he plans to take down the JLA and destroy him just because he can, but he's assembled his own league essentially and we see them entering we see this these shadowy figures entering entering the the chamber and um given we've already spent a, a prologue from the end of one issue and then an entire issue with uh, morrison and porter trying to keep these figures in shadow at least to hide some of them from us page two of this issue the very next page massive splash page huge reveal of exactly who is in lex luthor's injustice gang yeah and which is why I still feel the the previous issue works so much better without that odd prologue yeah. because they're so in shadow for so long, you really have no idea who's in it, and then suddenly, bang, here they are. Um, obviously, uh, Joker and Lex Luthor have been pretty apparent so far, uh, but we are gained by Doctor Light. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm gonna get Mirror Master. Yep. Cersei. Yep. And Ocean Master. Ocean Master, I think if you were paying attention and knew a bit about Aquaman, he was fairly obvious by the end of the last issue as well. Um, but I didn't know who Ocean Master was when I first read this, so there we go. Um, I guess, PJ, we've got... Uh, they're all meant to have a counterpart in the League. Uh, obviously, there's, a, there's an additional character who's currently uh, missing... Yeah. But obviously, Ocean Master is, um, I guess for the benefit of everyone listening, Ocean Master is Aquaman's half-brother? Yes, Orm. Uh, I believe they share the same mother. They definitely share the same mother, in fact, because she was Atlantean and Aquaman's dad was human. So, yeah. And of course, he was the villain in the Aquaman movie, I believe. I believe so. I haven't actually uh, seen it yet. I haven't seen it either. Um, and can we assume that he basically has the same powers as Aquaman? I believe he does, yeah. He can talk to fish, and I, I don't think he's quite as physically adept as Aquaman. Um, I'm guessing because he's a pure Atlantean, and as I say, I, I am not an Aquaman expert. I haven't read a lot of his solo stuff, but yeah, my understanding is Orm is just pure Atlantean, so he's stronger than a human, but he doesn't have Aquaman's level of strength and and, and everything. And Cersei is a classic Wonder Woman villain, I want to say. Yeah, and she is the sorceress of Greek mythology um, from the Odyssey. Uh, so classic turning men into pigs sort of thing. Yeah. And notable for having purple hair, I think. This, like I've got to be honest, this is the only story I can think of that I've actually read with her in it. I cannot think of any other stories I've personally have read that she's been in, so I don't know if this is her typical look or not. Uh, there is a issue of JLA JLA Elite. Did you ever read any of that? I can't remember. That was a weird spin-off that no, came much, much later. 
Okay, it's um yeah, it was about like um a spin-off Black Ops team called uh the JLA Elite. Oh, was Flash on the team but he had a, a black outfit? Yes. I yeah, they, he, yeah I, I I read it, I think as it was coming out, but that's the only time I read it and I don't remember it really. There's a crossover between the two teams where Cersei is one of the the evil sorcerers they're trying to stop. Okay. Then we've got, of course, Joker, who yep. really ne- needs no introduction. Now, Dr. Light. So, I'm guessing he's been brought onto the team as a Green Lantern bad guy, but I I think of him as a Teen Titans villain. I don't really know if he has had many appearances in Green Lantern prior to this. Um, yeah, I'm really not sure. I... I would say, and certainly given what's coming, I would say that Morrison almost exclusively wanted Dr. Light on this team because of the way his powers work and particularly the fact that Electric Superman exists. Yeah, that would make sense. But he is very... I, I, think, I think, given that we're all meant to have a counterpart, I think he is meant to be countering Green Lantern. Yeah. He said. And then, of course, we've got Mirror Master. Who is a Flash villain. He's one of the rogues. Who is a, Yes, who is a classic Flash villain. And I know that... that now, PJ, you please step in and correct me if I get this wrong. Because I know that there have been several Mirror Masks over the years. This particular one is the version that Grant Morrison introduced in the 80s in the pages of Animal Man. I believe that is correct, yes. Thank you. Uh, yes. S- Scottish mercenary, effectively, who Luthor's paying i guess (laughs) yeah he is uh he is uh, a glaswegian uh supervillain who again in the 80s was kind of like uh pops up just for like one no maybe like a, a handful of issues of animal man and it's not like a joke but the whole point is that he's just a mercenary yeah like he does he has no emotional investment at all He's just doing it because he's being paid. And I imagine the same is true here. You, you really get the feeling that everyone else Luthor has recruited, he's sort of done so with the promise of, we're going to take down the League. In Joker's case, we're going to take down Batman. And then they're like, yes, I am in. And then Mirror Master, it's like, yeah, you fought the Flash, but that's not enough impetus for you. Would you like some money? And I, 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 would, I don't know a massive amount about Mirror Master, but I would say that the thing I find... Absolutely, I think I love about him is that his powers never really make any sense. Well, isn't it that he, he, this version anyway doesn't really have powers? It's all technology based, isn't it? Yeah, but even so, it's the fact that like even it would be like, what are Miramaska's powers or, or abilities? He can do weird stuff with mirrors. So like, it's basically, it's, it's basically. You know, like stage magicians, and they say it's all done with mirrors. That is how you yeah. explain mirror. It's all done with mirrors. But how? No, no, nope, not not revealing how. And and I love it. It's not. It's never oh, even yeah. like, oh, he can access the mirror dimension or something like that. No, it's, it, it, his powers are as broad as you want to define them. Yeah, like he's created. I'm trying to think about things he's done in the past. Like he's created reflections of people. Uh, he's he can teleport using mirrors, like he can step inside mirrors. Uh, he turned Animal Man into a living mirror 
briefly. Yep. Like, it doesn't make any sense, and I love it. It's yep. so cool. So that's our Injustice gang, and it is a lovely splash page of all of them looking really good. Morrison, uh, not Morrison, he didn't draw it. Porter, Howard Porter. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry, Howard. Howard Porter has got these guys down already. It's brilliant. And we also get the credits on this page. So this is Rock of Ages Part 2. The first part was the prologue, but also Part 1. So who knows? Uh, and this is called Hostile Takeover. And it's uh, Grant Morrison writer, Howard Porter penciler, John Dell inker, Pat Garrahy colorist, Heroic Age separations, Ken Lopez letterer, Peter Tomasi associate editor, and Dan Raspler was the editor. Nice work, PJ, because that particular credit font is not the easiest font in the world to read. <laughs> I think it's because it's green on green as well. That's not... No, that doesn't sit well on the colour no, wheel, you might no. say. <laughs> oh, oh, and I guess we should also point out that Lex Luthor is holding... Oh, his shiny his, red rock. His shiny red rock that looks a bit like a human heart. With the, like with the blue fire in the middle of it. Now, um, with all his people assembled, Luther essentially tries to call the meeting to order, but the television screen is playing footage of the funeral of the the, fu- the collective funeral of the or memorial service of the people who died during the attack on Star City. Yeah, and you can you can actually see in the, uh, the set you can't, you can't really make it out in the first panel, but in the second panel you can see they're replaying the battle because you can see it appears to be Superman battling the evil Wonder Woman, or well, that might be Kyle. I think that's Kyle. Yeah, looking at it actually, that is Kyle, isn't it? He's got a mask on. You can't fake you can't fake those bangs. <laughs> But um, Joker makes a comment about the look at all the long faces, does a little laugh, and then he says that he's basically ordered special coffins that are going to send the dead kids flying into the air, like flapjacks. I don't... Do you throw flapjacks around? I don't... Oh, 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 I know this. In America, isn't a flapjack a pancake? Oh, is it? Yes, because no one can prove me wrong. Oh, Americans. (laughs) Right this second... (laughs) Uh, but Joker finds this very funny, and Lex smacks him in the face with his shiny rock. Yeah, and Joker is grinning while he kind of like rubs his kind of chin, but it's a, it's not a nice grin. Like it's one of those grins where he probably has a knife in his pocket. Yeah, yeah. And he's basically saying like, "What's your problem, Lex? Lost your sense of humor." And Luther just goes, dead children don't seem funny to me, Joker. Perhaps I'm just old-fashioned. Yeah, he's like regrettable casualties of our campaign. But So he's he knew this was going to happen. He's accepted that this is what he's going to do, but he doesn't like the idea of the Joker laughing at it. The other thing, though, that I do like on this page, and it's a small thing, is Joker calls him Lexi, which he's always done. And Lex... He lets it happen. He'll allow Joker to call him that. Whereas last issue, Ocean Master referred to him as Luthor and he said, that's Mr. Luthor. Ah. But Joker can get away with calling him Lexi. So, PJ, that is a very good point. Look at you. <laughs> Teaching <laughs> us again. Um, but yeah, and, and but Luthor's little like internal thoughts continue and uh, he points out that there have been many quote-unquote injustice gangs over the years 
but they all failed because they lacked the essential ingredient. Him, basically. Yeah, Lex Luthor. <laughs> That's the essential ingredient. Uh, and Luther is basically laying down the law to his kind of assembled people. He's saying, look, you know, we are not at war with the civilian population. So, yeah, if anyone's got a problem, you know, now's the time to speak up. And everyone just looks, like, super awkward. And I, I do think this is a nice insight into Lex Luthor, because he is he's a very selfish man. He will do whatever it takes to get what he wants. But he's not about the random destruction and random loss of life. He he is careful, more careful than that. And yeah, it's not something you'll always see in a supervillain, but it's something and it's not even something you see in every portrayal of Lex Luthor. There have been some some people just ignore they do play him as the cackling maniacal villain. But Morrison he's subtler than that and it's it's a much more nuanced take on Lex Luthor that I am all here for. This is still very much one of my favourite portrayals of Lex Luthor just in general yeah. I would say yeah. in the pages of JLA um, this and uh, of course a different universe if you will if you're keeping track of that but All-Star Superman yeah uh, he is fantastic in those pages as well um, we 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 get to hear some of um, Miramaster's uh, phonetic <laughs> Glaswegian which um, I won't insult anyone by, no. by trying to do here me neither um I remember years ago, uh, in the pages of New X-Men, when Morrison was writing that, there was one storyline right near the end where there was a giant talking whale which spoke with a Glaswegian accent. How do and, I not remember that? Uh, it was He was only in it for a couple of pages, but he was written in... His dialogue was written in phonetic Glaswegian. Uh, and it was so much broader than this. Like it was so almost, you had to say it out loud to actually understand what he was saying. I remember at the time I was reading that in the pages of the UK collector's edition reprints, which would include letters. Essential X-Men. Essential X-Men, yeah. And I remember someone wrote in, a UK reader, angry, going like, I'm Glaswegian. I've never spoken like that in my life. No one I know speaks like that. I'm sick of these American writers pretending they know what Scottish people sound like. <laughs> like, oh no, 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 no. This is this is Grant Morrison's home territory. Like yeah. he yeah. He's very much in his comfort zone. Well, in in an an un, slightly unrelated but also on the topic of this mirror master being Scottish. Um I was disappointed when the Flash Rogues showed up in an episode of the Justice League cartoon and um, Mirror Master was American. And I was yeah. pretty sure it was this. It was, he was voiced by Alexis Denisoff and he did a fine job, but he was American. And I was like, no, 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 no. This, this version of Mirror Master is supposed to be Scottish. What are they playing at? It's so strange, isn't it? Like, I guess, yeah. It's like there's, there's that um, un... You know the X-Men cartoon from the 90s, which we all know Oh, about, yes. <laughs> and how there was an earlier attempt at making that series where they only made a pilot episode. Pride of the X-Men. Pride of the X-Men, yeah. And Wolverine is Australian. Now, 
I've I've read a rumor for this because he was I think it was Ray Wise was actually doing the voice of um of Wolverine Ray Wise oh of uh, Twin Peaks fame and God knows how he's he's you know him when you see him yeah yeah he um I think there was a moment in the script where Wolverine is shouts an insult at Pyro um calls him a a dingo or something but it was meant to be Wolverine basically being racist um in the 80s and basically going oh you crummy australian person but they read it and went oh wolverine must be australian then so he voiced him with an australian accent same uh actor as plays wolverine in spider-man and his amazing friends when the x-men show up in that and wolverine's australian there too seriously yep god that's bizarre yeah anyway uh, anyway uh from one character with a funky spiky headwear 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 aka wolverine to another <laughs> um there you go look at that uh luther turns to ocean master and goes fine ocean master progress report please and what i love is he refers to ocean master as ocean master in air quotes as in like even saying his name out loud is ridiculous he did the same with green lantern last issue actually didn't he yeah you do get you do get the idea that Luther does kind of find this all beneath him in a way, like all these ridiculous people he's hanging out with. Yeah, but again, he doesn't do that with Joker. Joker, that's just his name. He's like, "Yep, you're the Joker. That's fine." There's Joker weirdly gets a little more respect from Luther than anyone else on the team. It is, yeah, it, it's a twisted inversion of the Batman Superman friendship, isn't it? Like yeah. they they do. God knows it's not a friendship, but there is a kind of sick respect there in yeah. a way. Yeah, exactly. The um, I do love the weirdness where these are all supervillains in their own right. They probably are all used to being their own mastermind, even if they're not particularly good at it. And I kind of, I do find it bizarre how Ocean Master just kind of fits into essentially doing like the admin <laughs> for, for, for the team. I, I think there's this thing like how, again, using Superman, all the heroes look up to Superman. In a weird way, all the villains look up to Lex Luthor um, because they know he's he's always got a plan. He's holding his own against Superman and Superman hasn't brought him down. So they just instantly become subservient to him. Yeah, I, I, I just like... I wouldn't wear a cape like Ocean Master does if I didn't think quite highly of myself. And yet, <laughs> yeah, it just shows how pathetic he is compared to Luther. He's just kind of, yeah, doing what he's told. Um, and he basically says that, like, hey, we can hack into government bulk teleport systems, which is a fun, a fun little reference. <laughs> uh, for 15 seconds tomorrow, and he goes, I've chosen a section of the Indian Ocean to... Uh, Cut and paste. He says, I'm, "I'm right now. I'm developing painful telepathic gogs to further enrage the wildlife." Which, uh, yeah, is a nice little. It's one of those things where, when you read it later in the issue, you go, "Oh, that's what he meant." But at the time, you're thinking, "What is he up to? This is weird." <laughs> like n none of none of that makes any sense. No, really. no. But Luther praises him. He says, nice to see everyone showing some initiative. Just don't show too much, as in, remember who's in charge. And I have a really wonderful thing here is you see Joker 
reaching for the flower on his lapel. And Luther, without even turning to look at Joker, just goes, Joker, you're here because I can use your particular talents and because only I can guarantee to deliver Batman gift-wrapped. Put the nerve gas flower away. It's so much fun. It's like, I don't even need to look at you, Joker. I know what you're planning. Don't kill me. We're working together right now. But then he sits down in his big old chair with a smile on his face and just says, at least for today. So it's almost like at some point he's expecting a confrontation with the Joker and he's almost looking forward to it as well. The, I would say the the most, the more shocking thing to me, PJ, uh, than, than Joker and Luther, you know, coming close but not killing each other, is how Ocean Master gets the virtual reality helmet <laughs> onto his head over the ridiculous mask he's already wearing. It must be like rubber or something, so it just presses down and then springs back up when he takes Ooh. the virtual reality helmet off. Unfortunately, we only see it lowering towards him. We don't see him actually putting it on. Oh, God, yeah. That's, that, that's more mind-boggling to me than anything that happens in this story. Um... But yeah, from one meeting of superpowered beings in a space place to another, we cut to the JLA Watchtower, where the JLA are meeting. And this is specifically labelled Day 2. The, the previous scene was labelled Day 1, and Luther has said he can, he can take down the League in three days. So, just keeping track. Keep it, <laughs> PJ's keeping count. Um... And PJ, you'll be pleased to you'll be pleased to hear that um, this is a reference to Genesis coming up. And will I, be, will I be pleased? Up until now, this was the only only hint I had to explain what the hell went on yeah. in between the last two issues. Because um, Superman goes, things have been hectic recently. I know, but now that Ares's threat has been dealt with, and the Star City relief operations almost over, da 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 da, da ergo. Genesis has been dealt with off-page. Um, I think it's time we get back on to working out who the hell was behind those holograms, basically. And then he mentions Genesis again, prior to the Genesis wave incident. We get it. There was a crossover. <laughs> God. Um, and I guess the only... I mean, presumably the JLA have been keeping tabs on this while the Genesis thing was going on. But uh, it seems the only lead they have is that... Um, Aquaman's evil duplicate was spotted uh, in the ocean somewhere. Near Sumatra, he says. Now, what I would like to point out here is uh, they're all sitting on their lovely chairs around the conference table. Wonder Woman's chair is still there. Uh, I believe there's probably a nice sign of respect, like we're just leaving it. Aztec's chair does not have a logo on it because nobody knows what Aztec's logo is. Yeah, I... I mm. I choose to believe it's hidden behind his head, PJ, but it's a shame that we never got to see it. No, it's not, because you can see Aquaman Green Lanterns behind their heads. No, PJ, no, I think it's hidden behind it. He's got a big helmet on. Maybe it just is his helmet, and when he sits there, it just... uh... (laughs) It perfectly mirrors the outline of his head. Yeah. Um, Yeah, poor poor Aztec. He he hasn't had his time to shine yet. Um, But, uh, yeah, uh, Aquaman points out that... uh, it's a nice little touch. He says, I got the story about my evil duplicate from some tuna. He goes, I know how that sounds, but trust me. <laughs> and uh, Superman says they've been scanning for anomalous laser activity. And while the hologram was active, 
he was able to detect the broadcast source in orbit. So he and Jean are going to go investigate that as soon as they've heard the latest from Batman. So it's like a news. They pass over to Batman with the sport. <laughs> Sorry. No. <laughs> that got me for some reason. Like Batman just doing like the Premier League, Premier League highlights. Um, but yeah, Batman isn't present, but he's on the big screen. And I love how... I just love this panel because how how matter of fact it is. Yep. Batman just goes, I'm going to paraphrase, but it basically goes, look, I think we can I think we all know what's going on. Someone's assembled an anti-league. Uh they're probably just trying to assess us so they can learn about us. I've put together a database on who's likely to be on the opposite team, but I think we can all probably guess. <laughs> you know. I just love how it's just like, oh shit, someone's I, done it again. I mean, we know for sure that they know that Luthor, Joker, and Ocean Master are on that team. Oh, yeah. Like, I I just... Th- this is one of the weird little subversions of this story, the idea that the League just automatically know what's going on. You know, it's yeah. like you could you could have told the same story in a slightly different way, where they're just completely at a loss going, I wonder who's behind these holograms. And it's like, no, we've, we've, we probably know what's coming. Yeah, we know it's a Machiavellian scheme. And uh, I've just noticed something on, on when we turn the page and go to the next panel. Superman's chair, they haven't updated the logo on. It's still his old uh, <laughs> red and yellow logo. And well, I yeah, know that's because Morrison loved that logo and, and still wanted it in the book. But uh... I mean, also, it can't be cheap, you know, remaking those chairs. Oh, I don't know. We saw Kyle just burning on the green arrow symbol onto... Connor's chair, didn't we? So yeah, but that was a quick fix. Okay, they were just they were just like, eh. Oh, I, I guess we should say that Flash is back. Yes, Flash is here. He's fine now. Still don't know no more about that injury he had. So okay. Um, the I guess the only interesting thing is that um, Aqu- uh, not Aquaman. Sorry, Batman has spotted something unusual on the internet. In that there was apparently an an explosion out in the Mojave Desert. Uh, just an enormous bang. Uh, no light. And Batman just goes, it could be someone stealing air. And dot, dot, dot. Just the the fact that that straight away, he's like, I reckon someone's stealing air. And I'm like, really? <laughs> How did you? What? I don't. Okay. I just, again, I love the fact that the JLA are already all over this. They're just like. And the fact that yeah. Batman just goes, probably not important. <laughs> Batman, someone's stealing air, you just said. How is this not important? I also love the idea that, bear in mind, this came out in October 1997. Yeah. I love the idea of Batman on, like, a a Geosites website. (laughs) On dial-up, kind of (laughs) checking. There were only, like, four people on the internet in 1997. Yeah, but they were all conspiracy theorists, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's four people on the internet, and one of them's Batman, and one of them's Lex Luthor. Like, he probably... (laughs) It probably worked it out. I remember going on Wikipedia. I didn't get on the internet until September 1997. Ooh. Like when I started secondary school. Like I was probably, you know, I probably had about as much internet experience as Batman had at this point in history. Yeah, but you weren't the world's greatest detective, so you didn't know which sites to look for, John. Well, I mean, yet. I mean... <laughs> My my skills were still in their larval stage. I remember going on... I swear I have a memory of going on Wikipedia in 1997 and there were like two articles. 
<laughs> I swear that happened. Although someone's going to comment at some point that says, oh, actually, Wikipedia didn't exist until 2004. Well, it was basically Wikipedia. I, I, I swear that happened. I, I remember I, I didn't really have the internet until I don't think I had it in the house. Well, maybe towards the end of my time before I moved away to uni, so around year 2000. But I do remember our first PC in the mid-90s. We didn't have Wikipedia, but I did have Encarta. Oh, my God. The CD-ROM encyclopedia. Jeez. God, what were people doing on the internet in 1997? I mean, I remember the Hamster Danks website. Yeah, it's like you just you would just go to a website where the only thing was a GIF, <laughs> <laughs> and and you'd be happy, damn it, because it's all you knew. You didn't know any better. I miss those Halcyon days. Yeah, yeah. I well, I mean, clearly, <laughs> I was going to say let's not get nostalgic, and yet here we are doing a <laughs> podcast about <laughs> about a twenty-three year. <laughs> We're regressing. <laughs> <laughs> we're just we're retreating into a simpler time it's the best thing to do um anyway um um yeah basically um while batman is theorizing whether somebody has been stealing air from the desert superman gets a report that the ocean has turned up the one that was stolen yeah, Jean's had a telepathic alarm from Green Arrow because the ocean has arrived in the San Fernando Valley in California. So, yep, they realise uh, the bad guys are making a move. So Superman dispatches Green Lantern uh, to go to California with Green Arrow and he and John are going elsewhere. And I don't entirely get this reference PJ, I assume this might be some American cultural thing, which we're not aware of, but Kyle doesn't seem particularly happy about having to go to the valley. I think it, yeah, I've heard that same thing. It's just not a particularly popular area at the time, I guess. I'm not sure. Right. Okay. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess it was the 90s. And Kyle's like, Kyle's meant to be like a New York. Doesn't Kyle live in New York? Yeah. Or am I dreaming? He does, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I guess you could go anywhere in the universe, but, you know, whatever. Let's complain about going to the valley, I suppose. <laughs> and, oh, sorry, PJ. Yeah, he basically says he, he wants to get this over with as quickly as possible, so he just flies off ahead while Superman and John fly off in uh, one of the Martian jump ships. A nice little callback to the previous issue. John does take his original form to pilot it. Now, here's an, here's an interesting thing. Um, both... I'm talking just talk let's just talk power levels, PJ. Let's just talk power for a second. Both Jean and Superman can fly several times faster than the speed of sound. Yeah. Um We've seen in a previous issue, uh the when the angels were attacking, that Superman can technically fly from the moon to Earth. Yeah. The one thing that neither of them can do is breathe in a vacuum. Yeah. So is that the only reason they're taking the spaceship, do you think? Yeah, I think it, because they're going to investigate this area, they don't know how long they'll be out there. So they take the ship because it's got more air than a tank on Superman's back. And again, it's a small thing, but I like it when a very powerful character has a slight yet realistic limitation. Yeah. And I like it. It's just a small thing. Speaking of limitations, Superman now worries to Jean. He says he's worried that Kyle may be pushing himself beyond his limits. And Jean says... But I don't think he's anywhere near. And it's a nice sort of thing, because Jean, again, as Batman said in a previous issue, 
Jean understands team dynamics better than anyone, yeah. in Batman's opinion. And um, Jean indicates that he thinks incredibly highly of both Kyle and Wally, even though they are young. He says that they're much, much better than they think they are. And then he says, you'll see to Superman. And uh, yeah, he will. So meanwhile, left behind on the Watchtower are Flash, Aztec, and Aquaman, who are basically just monitoring the machines. Yeah, they've got a channel open with Superman and Jean, so they can stay in touch with them. But then an alarm goes off. But it's a very strange alarm because the sound effect <laughs> here is Q, 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 Q. Oh, wait. That, no, now I've said oh, it out actually, loud. There we go. Yep. Yeah. God, that's clever. I would have said the exact same thing. What was it? What does a prolonged Q sound like? Yep. You've just... Yep, there we go. <laughs> I just assumed Aztec installed it, you know? that's <laughs> It's actually onomatopoeic. I'd never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, so a weird noise is ringing out. And, uh, yeah, we're just like, what was that? Buh? But we're not going to find out yet. We're just going to turn the page to San Fernando Valley, which is flooded, and there's a shark trying to eat a woman. And Green Arrow, I guess, has deployed his... His dinghy arrow. His, di- his dinghy arrow. <laughs> and there are a bunch of people in in the raft um, sailing down, I guess, like main street basically while sharks are attacking people which is not great one of them has an arrow in its head so connor's doing what he can yeah someone swims for that i guess this is is like a nice little you know that kind of thing where something happens between panels yeah like so a lady's swimming for her life pursued by a shark next panel connor's dragging her into the the raft and the shark has an arrow in its head yeah like you do and then great piece of dialogue when Connor says, it's okay, I sent out a distress call, someone should be here any minute too, and then dot, 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 and then a little smaller speech bubble underneath just says, steal the show. And we get a fantastic Green Lantern moment. Yeah, which like is bizarre and brilliant in equal measure, but Kyle has created an utterly gigantic human head with a straw in its mouth who has just drunk the ocean up and you, off the streets. And you can see some sharks swimming around in the water inside the giant head. It's so beautiful. I love the fact that Kyle just flies down and goes, yep, done it, dealt with it. Sucks up all the water in the sharks and then just goes and dumps them in the ocean nearby. And I just love the... the it's like... Kyle has been a superhero for a little while now and he's just become used to doing these incredible things and I kind of love how utterly nonchalant, nonchalantly he just drains the ocean yeah. off the streets. Like it, And you know, you can see in kind of Connor's eyes, like he's just absolutely kind of speechless but he's like, bloody hell. <laughs> like, I'm quite good with a bow and arrow and you just did that. Yeah. It's it's something that should be a huge deal. And to be honest, it barely gets mentioned again that Kyle just moved a whole chunk of ocean. Well, here's a question for you, PJ, based on what's about to happen. Um, Kyle nominated both Aztec and Green Arrow to join yeah. the league. Yeah. So was it in the pages of Green Arrow or the pages of Green Lantern where they met because they seem to be on quite good terms um that 
I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. I think they might. I think they might have met in both because obviously there's there's a Green Arrow, Green Lantern sort of history there. The the whole heart traveling heroes history uh, storyline from the eighties when Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen went on a road trip together and Speedy did all the drugs. Um, so I think that then once they had Kyle established and they brought Connor in as Green Arrow, there was a sort of an attempt to. Um, reignite that with the two of them the same way they tried to have Kyle and Wally eventually do the whole Flash Green Lantern thing as well um, so I think they'd met a few times perhaps in both books I'm not 100% sure on that uh, but mm. yeah certainly they were becoming friends and again I I like how clearly it's like this ain't your daddy's Green Arrow Green Lantern sort of thing but it's very much like a friendship for the 90s. But I like how they are apparently friends. You know, you they are young. Um, I don't think either of them is was kind of like raised in that superhero environment, which puts Wally in a different class in a way. No, I think um, certainly for a long time, Oliver didn't know he had a son. Connor was raised in a monastery, I believe. Um mm. And which explains a lot of his sort of more spiritual side, certainly a lot more spiritual than his dad. And yeah, Kyle, just a normal guy living in New York. Yeah, I kind of, I like, I, I get the impression that Kyle seems to genuinely appreciate Connor as having just somebody, quote unquote, normal to talk to, yeah. I guess. Well, because, exactly. Because he just kind of like touches down after draining the ocean and it's not even like, Greetings, citizens. I've just done something incredible. He just goes, he's like, oh, hey, Connor, I just saw like an amazing beach. How's it going? And I like Connor's reply as well. I'm wet. I'm okay. Some girl gave me her number. <laughs> Which, of course, makes Green Arrow like the polar opposite of like his dad. Notorious kind of womanizer yeah. and sleaze. And Connor's just a little baffled by it all. Like, I always got the impression he never really understood why why a young woman would find him attractive <laughs> yeah no he he is that sort of naivety about him definitely and uh Kyle gets in touch with John on the telepathic link and says yeah we're just going to take our coffee break because it's nice that the JLA get their allocated coffee breaks uh, every day and of course Kyle is utterly addicted to coffee yes well aren't we all the, this is established yeah i've i've i mean just before we recorded pj i supped my fourth cup of the day oh i've oh. i've i've just had my third um but i've definitely had one for each episode we've recorded today i, I don't record one of these <laughs> without a coffee i'll be honest with you <laughs> god knows we need it just to get through <laughs> such an ordeal um but as kyle says you know have you found anything suspicious up there you just get a close-up of jean and superman in the ship both kind of like narrowing their eyes and jean just goes Yes. And as the camera kind of pans out, we see the giant ominous skull satellite. And he goes, I think you could say that, Kyle. It's a great panel. It is. It really is. And sorry, I, I couldn't say anything then because I was trying to suppress a burp. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just speechless at no. how, how amazing <laughs> that panel was. I mean, it's an amazing panel, but apparently it made me want to burp. You see, we shouldn't be ashamed of these things, PJ. It shows that we're real, like we're <laughs> we're earthy, like we're down with the people. Um, but we cut from that ominous thing 
to the C plot. Like, you know, the other plot thread. There We're are back so many plots happening in this. In this. <laughs> there is a lot going on. Uh, but PJ, what's going on? What was, the, what was the alarm about? Well, Aztec says, did you hear that sound? The QQQQQ. Uh, and Aquaman is running to investigate, but Flash is the one saying, back me up, guys. And then the next panel, Flash is well ahead of Aquaman as he and Aztec fly down a corridor. And Metron of the New Gods has appeared in his Mobius chair. Uh, uh, half in, half out of a wall. Yeah, he's phasing through, and it looks like he's caused some damage as he does so, because there's sparks going off everywhere and smoke. And I don't think his his Mobius chair is in the best of shape at the moment. Now, PJ, uh, if if our, if a if a listener weren't immediately immediately apparent who uh, Metron was, uh, how would you describe him? Metron is. A Jack Kirby creation from the New Gods, the Fourth World. Um, I think, and I need to go back and read those old Kirby issues because it's been so long and I haven't, I can't remember a lot of it. But I think he's more like the um, observer of events. He doesn't tend to get involved. He just sits on his big old chair, which can take him anywhere in time and space and watches things happen. Um it's a fantastically weird visual. Like I, I re- again, my introduction to Metron was in the pages of JLA, hmm. and I, I think he's a he's a wonderful character to have. That he just so he's so odd. There's just something so unusual about. Like he's always sitting in this chair, and then just reality folds around him. So and the chair can be anywhere, it's like floating in space in another dimension, back in time. It's just fantastic. And what I love is is on in this drawing. Porter really leans into the curviness of the design. He he puts those little the circles and the, the jagged lines between them and he he just goes for it. He goes for Jack Kirby and he does it really well. Well, PJ, I've got to I've got to ask you a bit of like an inside baseball question for you. For uh this is is this not a slightly different design to the Metron chair? Than, than we're used to. I think it is. I don't think that is the normal design, but it still has a lot of Kirby about it. So I don't think this is the one Kirby drew. I was wondering if this was some kind of like 90s reimagining of, you know, I, I don't really know how often Metron and the new gods were appearing, like outside the pages of JLA. I mean, they just appeared in Genesis. so <laughs> and And I guess if... Oh, just to try and make sense of it. Um, the new gods, the mythology of which we're going to be diving into pretty heavily, are a Jack Kirby creation. Yeah. They they exist kind of on the far edge of space, kind of in like another plane of existence. Like I'm I'm not entirely sure if you could hop on a spaceship and just fly to new genesis which is where they live yeah i think it, it's on the edge of space but also i think it's referred to as just sort of being the edge of creation so it's it is in our universe but not quite in our dimension it's it's a very very kirby thing to do oh, yeah um i mean a lot of people sort of compared them to what he'd later do at marvel with um the eternals but the eternals weren't supposed to be part of the marvel universe that became an editorial edict Oh, but really? The fourth world stuff was always going to be in the DC universe because at the same time as he was uh, on that book, Kirby was doing Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. 
and he brings a lot of the fourth world into that book as well, which was weird but brilliant. And a, and a, and, and, and it was kind of it was kind of game changing. Oh yeah, it kind of it kind of envisaged superheroes, by which I mean the visual language of a superhero, like anybody in a weird costume with a cape. These kind of bizarre aliens who were also kind of like future people, who were also kind of like an advanced civilization, who were also kind of gods in a way like it was this all wrapped up in this weird psychedelia and like this weird cosmic vision that only jack kirby kind of had yeah kirby's big ideas and just executed perfectly and it became cosmic with a capital c yeah and and as that became a genre now and i think you see it in everything like pretty much like i would say kind of safely that pretty much like every superhero team ever has gone cosmic at some point yeah where they've encountered some civilization on the edge of space time and i think they all owe a debt to jack kirby in the fourth world it's unavoidable completely it's his magnum opus and for me probably the second best thing he ever did Ooh, after devil dinosaur come on john oh. <laughs> <laughs> right more fool me more fool me for, for for thinking otherwise yeah um but yeah so metron this bizarre character is in his chair phased half in half out of a wall and just energy pouring off it it's, and do you know what the angle of it sort of makes it look like he's skidding to a stop yeah or like it's listing or damaged in some way it's <coughs> You're right, PJ. Yeah, just having a cough. No, that's good. Like I said, keeps keeps it real. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and and Metron is is rambling, and he goes, "I've crossed light eons, seen titanic, <laughs> titanic. Good God, <laughs> try again. Seen titanic empires brought to dust, bargained for knowledge with vast pseudo gods. I must find, must find the philosopher's stone. All space, all time." Everything that exists is threatened. And then, let's be honest, Flash and Aztec both start to panic. Um, Flash <laughs> is even, you can see he's shouting this. He's like, What's he talking about? This is going cosmic on me, Aquaman. I don't know about this. And I love Aquaman's reaction of just, leave it to me. I've handled cosmic and lived. Now, PJ, has he? Um, yeah. Oh, God. He was one of the ones who went beyond the source wall in Genesis. They sent Aquaman beyond the source wall? Yeah, but not Superman. They drew straws, remember? Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Just... Do you think that's... Do you think that's... He's specifically referring to Genesis, though? No, I don't. I, I, you know, I'm pretty sure Aquaman has been involved in other DC events and storylines that went a bit cosmic. Um, I don't specifically remember him having much to do in Crisis on Infinite Earths, but there were other storylines in between that and this in the 11 I years. Just... I just, I, I mean, it must have happened. I, I just can't really imagine an Aquaman solo story where he ends up going to space. I'm pretty sure every, it's it's always talking about Justice League or uh, crossover adventures rather than an Aquaman solo story. Right. I, I kind of, I kind of choose to believe it's like an occupational hazard of just being a superhero in oh, the go, DC universe. Yeah, going cosmic is always an occupational hazard and you get double pay for it. <laughs> you do. 
But you don't get time off in lieu. No, no, no. You've got to come in. It's interesting, like, of all of them, I mean, obviously Aztec's a rookie, a relative rookie, but, like, I kind of would have imagined that Wally had some experience of the new gogs. Like, of any of them, I would have thought he'd be the one. Um, I can't really think of any occasion when he would have done, to be honest. Um... He only he has done cosmic before because he's not in most of Crisis on Infinite Earths, but once Barry dies, which is like issue eight or so, I believe, um, then Wally arrives and gets on the cosmic treadmill as Kid Flash and does all of that stuff. So yeah, it does seem a bit um, odd that he. But I think it's maybe something he's only dealt with on rare occasions, and he didn't have to think much about what he was doing; just had to react to it. Whereas. Obviously here, it's just he's only with Aztec and Aquaman, and he, he obviously knows he's got a lot more experience than Aztec. Um, so, yeah, he's lucky Aquaman's there with him, I guess. Um, so with on that bombshell, though, we cut back to Jean and Superman inside the big evil satellite, and I absolutely love this panel. It kind of demonstrates that Electric Superman can kind of kind of teleport in a weird way like i like he can oh kind of like a jaunt like short distances or something like that yeah i imagine it's it's sort of a moving at the speed of light deal um because light is energy and he can do things energy can do so he just pops out of the spaceship and appears a little bit in front of it with a boom and just says this entire headquarters is a hard light hologram and he also wonders, is it a trap? And I, and John goes, that would be the reasonable assumption. And I just love how automatically they're like, yeah, it's a trap. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> they're just also, right off the bat, they know entirely what's going on. I, I, I love it. And uh, Jean says the oxygen is real, uh, which they go on to say explains the explosion Batman reported. The air in the station was teleported from the desert, leaving a vacuum to be filled, hence the loud explosion. Um, and then they're walking past the conference table that the Injustice gang was sitting at before, but it is deserted. But then we cut to another panel, which is basically exactly the same, Superman and Jean in the same poses, the same table, but this time the Injustice gang are sat around it. Yeah, so you, you're like, you're going like, what, what the hell's happening? This, what, what's going on here? And you have Mirror Master... Who goes? There they are. Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do no. it, PJ. I'm not. I'm not gonna. We say can't. It we it can't be, do the accent. But um, yes, it would be offensive to people from Glasgow. It would be offensive to you. It would be offensive to anyone listening. He basically goes, "There they are inside the fake headquarters." So, I it's they. I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know. It's like a weird overlay between the two. I'm not gonna um, do the accent, but I'm gonna give you exactly what he says because I love it. There's the big yins inside the fake HQ, Mr. Luthor. Mind if I make myself scarce before the creepy Big Bam with the green hairdo puts in an appearance? To which Luthor goes, I don't understand a word of your, oh, let's call it brogue and be charitable, but you're excused, Mr. McCulloch, the Joker's an acquired taste. Mm-hmm. It's a nice little touch. It is. Even, um, even his own teammates are terrified of him. Oh, the Joker's a scary guy. And he's got a new toy, which is bizarre. So Joker has been given 
a miniature version of the satellite, which is which is kind of like floating between his hands. And he's basically referring to it like a voodoo doll. So anything he thinks of or does to the hologram in his hands will be reflected in the life-size hologram that Jean and Superman are now inside of. Yeah, and Luther's narration tells us that Dr. Light and Mirror Master teamed up to create it, and it's it's a, a photoplastic hard-light hologram sculpture that can be shaped like clay. And again, it's a very Morrison-y kind of idea of just yeah. going like, literally, we have a character whose entire deal is mirrors, and we have a character whose entire deal is manipulating the electromagnetic spectrum. Let's just put them together, see how their powers work in tandem. It's just a nice quirk. And how, of course, even in his uh, narration boxes, Luther has to make sure he, that we all know this was his idea. Yeah, he's, it kind of shows why he is in charge. These, his are the brains which are making all this possible. Yeah. And then we get this wonderful scene with Jean and Superman where they're basically going through this fake version of the satellite, which is all a hologram. They know it's a hologram. And Superman can sense, as he puts it, an electromagnetic presence. And Jean says that there's more going on here. I'm aware that there is a consciousness in the structure around us, which is just, again, a very bizarre idea. And then suddenly a giant Joker face appears in front of them and they know exactly what's going on. And um, they're worried, which they should be, because effectively now they are in the Joker's mind. Yeah, the hologram has become a perfect reflection of the Joker's thoughts. And yeah, as Superman and Jean perceive it, it's it's a maze, it's a labyrinth, essentially like on the cover. Uh, and it looks more like the Hall of Mirrors. It's a like lot it's more just... chaotic. It's just random. And when Superman tries to do his telepathic vision, to not telepathic, telescopic vision to try and, like, you know, see to the end of the maze, he just goes, it goes on forever. No rational mind could stand a chance in here. Of course. And again, again, they get it. They know what's going on. Yeah, and also, they haven't met that many times, but Superman has fought the Joker enough that he knows him. So he's, yep, of course, Joker, got it. I know what we're doing here. And then I love this sequence, actually. It's so clever. I don't know if the science behind it is real or if it's just, you know, Morrison pseudoscience bullshit, but it works in the context of the story. <laughs> it's and the it's amazing. best kind of bullshit. Damn yeah. right. So Jean, Superman asks if Jean's got any ideas and Jean says, well, I can alter the shape of my brain as easily as I can the rest of my body. It occurs to me that if I shrink the rational analytical left hemisphere of my brain and enlarge the irrational right hemisphere, then I can subdue all logical linear thought and open the dark cellars of the unconscious intuitive mind and see the world as the Joker sees it. And then he starts laughing. And his face distorts into this big grin, which is kind of very unsettling to see. It's horrific. And it's really twisted, actually. And you see the maze as Jean sees it and there is only one clear path out of it and it's literally highlighted with glowing yellow arrows like it's the most obvious thing in the world as far as Jean's concerned it's a straight line now uh, Superman still just looks baffled and a little worried 
Um, because Jean's made himself crazy. But yeah, just straight line highlighted with arrows and Superman just has to follow a cackling Martian Manhunter as he makes his way through this maze. It's it's so good. I would just like to say, and one throwaway line of dialogue, which I missed, and again, I just love, love, love how the League take everything in their stride because they've done this sort of thing before. They're just very experienced. Jean goes, only, this is before he's made his brain crazy, he goes, only our most dedicated enemies would understand our limitations so well. Batman was right. They formed a League of Evil. So it's in principle, it's the perfect trap. Uh, the League are inherently rational. Superman is inherently rational. And here he is trapped in an irrational prison, basically. It would be the complete undoing of him. But it feels like, uh, at this point, Luthor still has plans within plans because his own narration here just then says the corporate takeover of the JLA continues. They have no idea what's happening to them. So you, you get the impression that they know what Jean has done and Luther's still like, no, we're still winning. We're still all over this. This isn't... John figuring out the maze isn't going to do them any bit of good. Well, surely, like, Luther would certainly know at this point that Superman has an annoying habit of always getting out of whatever death trap he's planned for him. I so, mean, he's done it a lot by now. Yeah, so he, I don't think Luther, Luther is definitely not stupid enough to think, oh, yeah, this will work. Like, he's got to have a backup plan. <laughs> well, it's um, as, as he calls it, the corporate takeover. So it's, it's movements within movements. Well, we cut suddenly, just to emphasise his point, we cut from Jean and Superman back to a coffee shop in San Fernando Valley. And Luther's uh, kind of um, voice, oh, well, not voiceover, his kind of like internal narration goes, we've cut the figureheads off. Uh, Superman and Martian Manhunter are isolate, isolated and powerless. And Cersei is recruiting the company hotshots. Do you know what I've only just noticed on this page as well? Uh, is in that first panel on the far right, there's a couple of redneck-looking dudes with a dead shark on the hood of their big pickup truck. Taking yes. a photo. <laughs> yeah, weird, weird little things, which uh, Howard Porter was kind of cramming into the back. Actually, yeah, I've spotted so many of these as the series has gone on. Like, I really, yeah, just hadn't noticed any of these before. I think I think it's a, an element of I don't pay as or on previous read throughs I haven't paid as much attention to the backgrounds as I should have, and obviously when we're doing it this way and I'm aware that I'm talking about it for something that other people are going to hopefully listen to, um, I know that there's more things I've got to say and I sort of I I study it more, and so I find these little details that I missed and I but I love that that the comic can have layers like that that you can reread it still find new stuff. No matter, I, I don't know how many times I've read these things over the years. Oh, God, yeah. Countless times. Um, um, yeah. Well, PJ, here's a question for you. Um, the coffee shop they're sitting in is called Cup O. Johnson. Cup O. Johnson. Johnson. Do you know if that might be a reference to something? Now, I don't, I'm not 100% sure if it had, no, it wouldn't have been yet, actually. Because um, I know when. Joe Casada took over as editor-in-chief of Marvel. He had a column called Cup of Joe um, mm, that would regularly appear in Marvel comics, but this is too early for that. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess it must be, but I'm not sure what it's a reference to. No, I just checked the credits again in case there was somebody on the creative team with Johnson as a surname, and 
No, that one might be lost to time, unless any of our listeners know. Do tell hey. us. Do tell, do tell. Um, but yeah, like Kyle and Connor are just like taking a breather, basically. Um, Kyle is is hopped up on coffee. He's got his mug. Um, Connor is drinking water, which I think is a nice touch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Kyle is opening up a bit. He's he's worried because he, he's he's now thinking. Well, Wonder Woman died. If Wonder Woman can die. He compares it to somebody killing the Statue of Liberty, which is a pretty good analogy, I think, in this world. And he's he's worried now. He's like, if she can die, then I've got no chance, effectively. And he says, and I keep missing work deadlines as well. What? And Connor points out, you, you've got superpowers, I've got a bow. <laughs> yeah, and suddenly I'm up against holographic killers and galactic tyrants. What possible good could I do against... Oh, I don't know, Dark Side or somebody. For example. For example. We do get a nice touch here where a police officer comes over with a piece of paperwork for Kyle to sign. Yeah. Which I assume is like the generic JLA, you know, kind of like, oh, the, the town almost got destroyed by a supervillain. We just need the JLA to sign for it. Yep. To prove that this <laughs> happened. Yeah. And we see Cersei wearing office wear, um, reading Ulysses, which is a nice little touch. Yeah, I like that, by James Joyce. Or, uh, oh no, it is actually the James it, yeah, Joyce one. it says right there on the cover, James Joyce. You know, PJ, it's right, because you used your eyes. I and did. Your, and your rational brain, whereas I, blind, only saw, only saw Ulysses. There we go. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, yeah, and Kyle continues to moan. He says... You know, it was easy when I was the new guy and everyone would go easy on me, but now you and Aztec are newer than me, so I've got to, you know, I've got to, like, pick up more more of the pieces. Um, and he also just talks about, again, like, how his, his private life is suffering. He goes, like, how can I look Superman in the eye and tell him I can't help with relief work in Star City because I'm late with the logo design for an, in, for an internet cafe? And a nice little reference here as well, because he says it's easy for Wally, guys living in a mansion, racing around with a smile on his face, and then a quiet... I didn't say any of that. And until you told me, PJ, I didn't know that Wally had won the lottery. Yep. So he had a mansion. That was nice for him. Which is such a weird little touch. I had no idea that Flash was technically a millionaire. Yeah. It's how he can afford to be a full-time Flash. Was that the entire reason, do you think? I think so, yeah. I think they just didn't want to have the... Because they had him reveal his identity as well fairly quickly. So I just don't think they wanted him to um, have to deal with any of the private life, second job. Because that was very much what would happen in all the superhero books at that point. So to have yeah. a book where it was literally just he could be the Flash full time and not have to worry about anything else. And everyone so knew. It was and, yeah. It's, it's public knowledge that he's 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 Wally West. Yeah, Wally West being the Flash is is known at the moment. Um, later, huh. I, I don't know how I wasn't reading it, but later on, I think after Mark Wade leaves the book, um, Wally reclaims his secret identity. But that was around the same time that Marvel were having like Iron Man and Captain America and and other people come out effectively and reveal their identities to the world. And at that same time, DC had Wally West basically go back in, reclaim his secret identity, and no one knew they were one and the same anymore. Huh. Wow. Okay. Well, there we go. Yeah. 
I, again, I just find it fascinating. I wonder how how did he go about keeping his loved ones safe? That's always the uh, the flip side, isn't it? Uh, money. Of course. I was, I was just about to say it's easy when you're super rich like Tony Stark. But of course, Wally was super rich. Super rich. Not like oh, Tony okay. Stark, but rich enough. Okay. Okay. It's all making sense. Um, so Kyle is, you know, griping about how Wally has it easy. Um, Connor is clutching his head. And he basically goes, look, it's okay. You're stressed. I'm stressed. I can teach you some really good meditation techniques. But suddenly, Cersei walks over. Although, of course, neither of them know who she is. Uh, and she goes, you know, I couldn't help overhearing. I'm a psychiatrist. And you know what? I think you're right. You and know? then, yeah, we get more Lex Luthor narration explaining Cersei's power. that She basically, she can manipulate men. Almost, There's a slight magical psychic energy to it. She, she can turn men into beasts. And supermen, men of honour and will and impossible morality, she turns supermen into mere men. Yeah, and the two guys are, like, a little confused as she sits down next to them. And there's maybe, like, a slight, as you say, PJ, like, a slight hint that there's maybe, like, some magic going on here because their defences seem a little lowered. Yeah. But she basically goes on about how Look, you you surround yourselves with aliens, immortals, perfect supermen from other planets, and you two are basically just human cannon fodder, you know. Um, and she just starts like unpicking all their worries and all their kind of like psycho their their little kind of I'm trying to find the right word for it, like their um, insecurities. That's it. So she's like, uh, you know, Superman let your father die green arrow and kyle you're so desperate to replace your lost father that you'll willingly obey any authority figure yeah and then she she goes one step further and says you don't think they know exactly how to manipulate you the martians telepathic and kyle starts suddenly goes wait a minute how do you know about my dad because yeah, Green Arrow being the son of Green Arrow, even though they don't know the secret identity, that is a thing connection you can make. But yeah, how would she know about Kyle's dad? And he does start to think, this isn't right, we should go. But Connor says, where was Superman when Ollie died? And he decides he's going to stay. I do like the idea that maybe the only reason Kyle was able to kind of walk away in a befuddled state is because he had the willpower of a Green Lantern. Do you think there's anything in that? Yeah, I, th- I think I think there is also historically an element of, of the ring does have a certain amount of protection against psychic attacks. Mm. Even so, he still is kind of clueless. But, like, he doesn't really know what's going on, but it's maybe just enough to stop him yeah. being completely sucked yeah. in i suppose a, com- a combination of the willpower you need to be green lantern and the ring's own defenses mean he's just about able to fight it off um but yeah but connor stays as talking to cersei while luther's kind of narration returns and he goes i gave them three days i was probably being generous <laughs> and yeah we have 
we cut to Lex Luthor. This is, is a bizarre page. A really unusual page. Uh, he's essentially playing with his weird glowy heartstone thing. Yeah, he says that LexCorp, basically he's got he's got a department that he essentially keeps to scour the world for artifacts he could find useful in his war with Superman. And this stone is, is one of those things. Uh, they've analysed it, they don't really know what it is, but he says it resonates in unison with the brainwaves of the alien I've been keeping uh, in the LexCorp lamp's basement, so he's not on the satellite now. Uh and that he's been using it to manipulate the mind of the alien through him, the minds of the Injustice gang. And then the rock seems to pull apart and it becomes this very, this sort of flowing silver metal. This is very Ditko, this large panel of the rock unfurling. And, and it's hard to describe. It's it's lots of pathways all merging and looping around each other. And yeah, it's two very because either thing if you needed like an artifact that gave you bizarre powers or whatever either thing would have worked like a, a glowy heart-shaped stone or some impossible swirl of like liquid metal which is kind of what this looks like it's doubly weird that the thing can switch between the two apparently yes yeah, and as it looks very much like, as I said, Steve Ditko when he used to draw the alternate realities in, in Doctor Strange and when he'd go between worlds. It's that sort of psychedelic feel to it. Um, and again, Porter nails it. It's beautiful. And it's a nice little touch where after Luther has just gone on about describing this bizarre, all-powerful stone he found, he goes, I'm beginning to believe I may have stumbled upon the ultimate weapon. Pause. I've always been lucky like that. And then the scene cuts nice again. Touch. <laughs> it's just, yeah. <laughs> okay. There's lots of quick scenes, though, in this issue, isn't there? You get these big moments, and then suddenly you're somewhere else. Yes, it's actually a fair point. I hadn't really thought of that because it's, yeah, it's, I hadn't, yeah, it's a very good point, PJ. I hadn't really noticed before how many, it's more like a collection of moments. Yeah. And yet they, do work quite well together as kind of because now we're on like the D plot, if anything. Like here's another plot thread we're about to begin. Yeah, we we cut to a moment that when I was first reading it, I w- was very unexpected. Uh, we cut to New York City and um, Eel O'Brien in a bar entertaining some people. Um, now at this point, I don't know about you, John, but I did know that Eel O'Brien was Plastic Man. Um. Again, I was not familiar with the character of Plastic Man before reading JLA. And again, I read the series in a bit of an odd order. So this was not my first introduction to Plastic Man in the pages of JLA. Possible spoilers. But yeah, like I, I would have had no idea what was going on here otherwise. I knew who Plastic Man was because I vaguely recall there was a Plastic Man cartoon done by, I want to say, Hanna-Barbera, that they may have done in the 60s or 70s, but it was repeated on TV in the early 80s, and I remember watching it and and enjoying it. Um, So I knew who Plastic Man was from that, and 
when he turned up in this, I didn't realize that he was DC. I had no idea he had any connection to Superman or Batman or any of those characters. In fact, at that point, he probably wasn't because that would have been around the same time as Crisis was happening. Um, so when he then showed up in these books, and I went, wait, is that the same plastic man from my very young childhood? And it really excited me. It's so mad, isn't it? Because I, I can't imagine that in 1997 many people were thinking about Plastic Man, let alone caring. And I I have to believe that his inclusion here is because Morrison really liked the character yeah. and wanted to bring him in. Because now, um, I think there's many people for whom, who, who have read JLA over the years, who may think that Plastic Man is a staple of the JLA. Certainly, and, he stayed with the team for a long time after other members would come and go. He was a mainstay for a good long while in the oh 90s God, and early noughties. Yeah. And other other creative teams who would pick up the series after Morrison, they really ran with him. Yeah. Like the idea that there was just like a wacky prankster on the team. But again, it, it all began here, really. Like he had no, Plastic Man had no association with the League that I can I can think of before this. Yeah. And he's in this bar when he's approached by Matches Malone. And I have to say, this page was my first encounter with Matches Malone. So at this point, I didn't realise who Matches Malone really was. Same here, actually. Like, this is the first time... I God, no, I, I would have had no idea. Like, who the hell is Matches Malone? Like, what's going on here? Um, and oddly enough... It wasn't until Morrison's later run on Batman Incorporated that I saw him play with the character again of Matches Malone. You know, but for me, it was like a direct link between Rock of Ages and then like, oh, I don't know, 15, 18 years later, uh, Batman Incorporated and Matches Malone. Like the only two times I've seen it. It was later on. There were some other Batman stories I read later on, which had the Matches Malone uh, persona in it, and th- that was one of them. Oh, okay. Now I get that page in in that issue of JLA. And then there is, and again, didn't notice this first few times I read it. Ha- did notice it on maybe a third or fourth read through. There is another little moment later on where you go, oh, there it is, right? Yeah. So did you? So for the benefit of anyone listening, and correct me if I'm wrong, PJ, Matches Malone is another alter ego of Bruce Wayne. Yeah, it's someone he becomes when he needs to basically go into the underworld, the criminal underworld, not the, you know, Lucifer underworld, the other one, Uh, (laughs) when he needs to go and meet up with some gangs and get some information out of them. He adopts this gangster persona of Matches Malone, who it turned out was a real person who died and Bruce Wayne adopted his identity to use in this manner right. there's a whole story about it and i cannot remember a lot of the detail for but i do remember that being the that's when the bat family found out wait matches malone was real yeah because because matches malone just basically looks like his his kind of characteristics are wears a suit i mean obviously looks like bruce wayne because you know he kind of he, he kind of is bruce wayne um but always wears sunglasses has a mustache and kind of obsessively strikes matches in his in his hand. Like that's like his quirk. He's just always lighting matches. Yeah, and he's like a low level low level criminal sort of the persona at least. Yeah, you know he 
there's I gotta say they do do some fun scuff with him in Batman the second section of Batman Incorporated written by Morrison which came during the new 52 reshuffle so frankly the ongoing storyline he'd been working on got completely scrambled Hmm. by new 52 happening halfway through but he does some fun scuff with matches Malone there where he's uh, Bruce Wayne spends a couple of issues in the persona of Matches Malone, and you do get to know him. I know he's not a real person, but you get to know him more as a character, and it's quite kind of fun. He's like a comes across as like a, an honourable gangster in a way. I haven't I haven't read those. I'll have to have to check those out. That does sound good. They are they are. It's like a gem in the middle of a, uh, frankly, a bit of a messy storyline. It's not a, it's not a neat conclusion, shall we say? But uh, yeah, those are fun. Those are fun moments. So Matches approaches Eel O'Brien and just says, uh, "Name's Matches Malone. Batman sent me." And O'Brien ignores him. He just start keeps talking to the ladies, and then Matches, let's say, puts on his Batman voice and just says, <laughs> "I have a match. There's more oil in your hair than they got on the beaches of Q8. Think about it and talk to me, Plastic Man." And at that moment, Plastic Man, I think, realizes who's in front of him because. His eyeballs pop out of his head and his tongue turns into three trumpets and he screams. Uh, it's a like the, striking a, moment. Like a cla- I have to imagine that not many people reading this at the time would entire instantly get what was going on here. Yeah, I like, didn't. I, no, and I, I think even in 97, I think like, you know, Matches has to spell it out by calling him Plastic Man. But yeah, suddenly the juxtaposition of being in this seedy bar and then suddenly... He he is like a living Hanna Barbera cartoon. Yeah, it's it's bizarre and wonderful. And he just says, "That's quite a commanding voice you have there." Matches in air quotes and says, "Turn down the volume and we'll talk a while." So, and again, I've gotten used to seeing Plastic Man around now. Yeah, but he is a strikingly odd character. Yes, there was. I think it was during Morrison's run, they did a Plastic Man one-shot, um, which was called JLA Presents Plastic Man, but they'd crossed out the P. So it was JLA Resents Plastic Man, and uh, the cover <laughs> was the league trying to force Plastic Man off the cover and get rid of his logo while Superman stand there shouting, stop, don't read this comic, it will utterly ruin the reputation of the JLA. And it is one of the strangest and funniest comics I have ever read. Seriously, yeah. Who, who who wrote that? Ty Templeton. Seriously, oh, I have I I have to look that up. I had no I th- idea. And I think it is it's, it's an anthology book, so you've got two main stories in it, and then um, like a couple of other short bits and pieces here and there, and it just utterly takes the Mickey out of both DC and Marvel at the time. Okay, wow. Okay, that is one for the list. I will have to I will have to check that out. Um, but from the D plot, we cut back to the B or C plot. I'm completely losing track now, but <laughs> um, we're basically, we're back on the fake holographic satellite, which is now a physical representation of the Joker's mind, which is again, a sentence I didn't think I'd say out loud. And Jean, with his reshaped twisted brain, is doing fine. Like he he, he He's charting a clear path through the maze. And yeah, Superman says he's feeling disoriented, he, he he's finding it difficult, and John's basically saying that's what they're counting on. Reason is the core of your being, they threaten you with unreason. But 
the way Porter's drawn him on this, it's the genre we know and love. He's just the pose and the facial expression is disturbing. It's very sinister. And just that minor tweak, just having him stand in a different manner and putting that smile, it's it's really effective. Very well done. And I love how Superman is struggling. Like yeah. It's actually nice nice to show him in a kind of vulnerable state where he's saying, like, I, I can't make any sense of this. It, it, it's, it's impossible. And, um, and Jean goes, well, from the Joker's perspective, there's only one path. There's only one straight line through this madness. And, he, and, Jean, and Superman's like, you're barely making sense. And um, Jean just grabs him by the hand and says, trust me. It's quite and, a nice little touch. Well, yeah, it's the take my hand, Superman, trust me, is a close-up panel circle of just Jean's hand grabbing Superman's hand. But something about it just feels so sinister. Oh, geez. so threatening. Yeah, I find that really sinister. <laughs> oh my god! I, I clearly I still have the the heart of a a, a, a child because I, I thought I was like, oh, this is sweet. This is nice. <laughs> <laughs> it just Jean, where he is in the headspace right now. Yeah, is I find it sinister. Uh, and then we cut to another panel with uh, Luthor and Ocean Master and a new arrival. When you read this, John, did you know who that was? Oh, God, no, PJ, no. I did. Did you really? Yes, I'd read his solo series from the 80s. Okay, okay, so... I there is a, there is a creature sitting in a chair who frankly looks a lot like Jean. Yep. Now, I, okay, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say no. that this is Jem... Son of Saturn. Yes. So apparently only you and Grant Morrison <laughs> knew and or cared about Jem, Son of Saturn. So in the late 90s when I was still at school, um, a friend of mine and I, we'd, we'd walk home uh, and there was a Oxfam bookshop on the way home from school which we'd go into occasionally. And one day we went in and we found a huge stack of old Marvel and DC comics that they were selling for like 20p each. And um, we, between us, I think we bought the entire stack and then we both went home and read them and swapped so we could both read what each other had bought. So between us, we got the complete run of the 90s Luke Cage series, the early 90s one, uh, half of the entire run of Alpha Flight from the 80s, Wow. Um, the complete Amethyst Princess of Gem World and every single issue of Gem Son of Saturn. So somebody really had a thing for Gem comics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> somebody would only collect something if it had Gem in the title. But I actually really like the... Uh, I haven't read it since then, but that 80s Gem series I really liked because it, it's it, he's such an innocent character... He's he's from one of the moons of Saturn, and he comes to Earth, um, and he's got super strength and telepathic abilities, but he's such an innocent. He doesn't really understand how the Earth works, and he befriends this, this child uh, named Luther. Uh, not that one. And, yeah, it's just a lovely series, and, and so, so when I saw Jem in this, I got really excited. <laughs> Your heart leapt. It did! Is... My question is, at the time when Jem, son of Saturn, was created, and, and in his series, 
It, was it ever addressed? Was it directly story related that he was so much like a Martian? Not that I recall. Because um... I, I want to say I've read something since that's, that this might have been a retcon that said that his species are a spin-off of the Martian race. I'm sure I've read that somewhere as well, but I don't think it was in that series. Um, I mean, even if you look at him here, he's got his hand only has two fingers on it, and they don't have the shape-shifting ability either. It's, it's, it's just the strength of the flight and the telepathy they can do. Um, but yeah, I, I do recall somewhere someone made the, the Gems people were an offshoot of the Martian race. Did he always have the big kind of fat brow ridge that Jean also has? You know, like really kind of exaggerated eyebrow. Yeah, style. I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. God knows. Like, that feels almost intentional. In, like in that 80s comic, he was a brighter shade of red. He wasn't this sort of darker, purpley. It was, it was very bright, vibrant red color. Mm-hmm. Well... I'm glad he made you happy, PJ. I'm glad. <laughs> I, uh, the, I must be the only person that, that Morrison wrote that for. It's just me and Grant. We're in this together. Well, I guess all we really know, because uh, I can't imagine the average reader would have been particularly familiar with him, is that uh, he is apparently an alien. He's sitting in a chair. And as Luther previously stated, his bizarre glowing stone uh, apparently interacts with Jem's brain in a way he seems to be able to control him because through it yeah um and he says to ocean master that he hopes someone fed the pet because he needs him to telepathically scan and imitate the martian's thought transmissions now again i've I, it makes a terrible kind of logic like if you were luther and you were trying to take down the league you'd need some kind of plan to deal with the psychic alien so having a psychic alien of your own who you've had to kind of brainwash is a very luther way of solving a problem yep but john has almost made his way out of the maze kind of dragging dragging superman through it uh they come to a surprisingly normal looking door and they john picks up what looks like a cd player for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah, and he says that's the maze in its true form. Uh, it's the only solid object in the decoy environment. And um, he's still got the Joker grin on his face in that panel. But then in the next panel, as he passes the CD player to Superman, it, it looks like he's now coming out of it. And he looks very uncomfortable with himself. Like that facial expression to me reads as, I'm tired of this now. I don't like this. Yeah, God, that must have been pretty... Yeah, I mean, to, to kind of intentionally make yourself insane for a brief period of time, that must be very, very, very unusual. Yeah. Um, but he hands the CD player to Superman and goes, you know, can you do anything with this? And Superman goes, I mean, I guess so. My new powers mean I should be able to read digitally encoded information. Um, so he concentrates and goes, okay, it's on a very narrow wave band. Dear Superman... Your optical scan triggers the bomb. <laughs> and then we get this amazing panel of Superman just kind of like in utter panic going like, oh my. And then suddenly 
the satellite explodes. Yeah, like there's there's a, a big shockwave that sort of splits it in half and bits of debris go flying everywhere and it's a big explosion. It looks amazing, I have to say. Uh, very, very cool. I The more I look at that CD player, the more I think that Superman is holding like a, a Sega Genesis in yes. his hand. It looks like the uh, the second iteration of it, the uh, the Mega Drive Two. Hey, hey, PJ. Yeah, and it's it's Genesis again. Is it Genesis? Oh so, no! So many, so many references. So many, oh, so many. Oh, you no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um. So to save PJ from that, we cut to the Q plot or whatever. Whatever thread we're currently tugging on. The Watchtower, Metron, Flash and Aztec and Aquaman. And, you know, you could be forgiven for forgetting that was happening. And I hadn't... I ex- Most of what Met- uh, Metatron... Most of what Metron is saying here uh, is kind of like in bold. Like he's just kind of like shouting the whole thing. Yep. And he's just talking cosmic gibberish, basically. Like, it makes sense to everyone, but to everyone reading. But if you were any of the assembled characters, you'd just be thinking, like, what the bloody hell is going on? Yeah. So he talks about the Philosopher's Stone, ultimate object in the universe, fragment of the eternal source. Uh, do you understand what Darkseid will do if he gets it? The High Father has commanded me to seek your aid. And flashes, um, okay, we're understaffed. Uh, how did Darkseid break free from the source wall? Because that happened in Genesis. What are you doing? Because Metron is also playing around with JLA technology while he uh, rambles. Yeah, and uh, he goes, I'm using Motherbox, so, uh, which of course a Motherbox is the sentient computers that the people of um, New Genesis carry with them. He goes, I'm using Motherbox to upgrade your teleport device. Your current technology is infantile and will not suffice for trans-temporal travel. And the Aquaman tries to get some answers. Answers? That's not a word. Answers. We've done a lot of recording today, PJ. Answers. That's the that's the right answer, PJ. Uh, and um, he's he's asking questions. He's not getting an answer. So eventually, he just shouts, "Stop tampering with our machinery and talk to me!" And Metron, surrounded by crackling Kirby dots and bizarre energy goes well he goes understand the the philosopher's stone reflects all of creation in miniature its power is theoretically limitless whatever you're doing right now is not as important (laughs) whatever it is it's not as important as finding the stone because if we don't find it dark side will claim it and it will be the end of everything basically and then Aquaman's like, oh, wait, us? You want us to find the stone? We're a bit busy. So he asks Flash to open a telepathic channel to Jean. But, of course, that goes to Jem instead. And Jem just reports back, everything's fine here, Flash. So Flash is like, yeah, cool, good to go. Yeah, and Flash kind of like is clutching his head a little bit and looks like a little pained. As though, you get the impression that like Jem's telepathic hijacking is maybe like a little unpleasant or unusual perhaps yeah like it's a different it feels different than when he normally communicates with jean but not enough that he takes notice of it um because you you can't 
a scene of Jem telling him satellites are fake, Superman and I are proceeding to join the others. And Luther then says, uh, okay, I've got warheads armed and ready to beam onto the JLA watchtower. And again, it's it's interesting because, yes, Luther's gone to the effort of assembling an evil League team, but at the same time, most of his kind of master plan just involves doing very mundane things, yeah. like tricking Jean and Superman to a place where there's a bomb, and now I'm going to teleport some nuclear warheads on board the JLA Watchtower. Like, it's just a very brutally direct way of solving a problem. And what did I tell you? Three days. And Wally looks a little confused, but he goes like, okay, I mean, Jean says it's fine, so... I guess we're going to help you, Metron. And Metron just goes, good. And you get that wonderful close-up of the bizarre eyes. That the, the, the Kirby eyes. New Genesis have. Yeah, where they have square pupils. Yeah, like, it's amazing. Uh, same as Galactus. It's a very Kirby finish, the square That's pupil. A, that is a very good point. Yes, I forgot that Galactus had square eyes. Too much TV. Yeah, <laughs> I decided not to make that joke. I thought it was too <laughs> obvious. <laughs> Okay, so on top of everything that's happened, we cut now to, to the back cave of all places. I love this scene so much. PJ, what's happening? So uh, Robin's there and he's bandaging his arm and he basically says, uh, look, we, me and Nightwing, we've wrapped up this case, all good. Anything new on the Joker case? And Batman says, it's Nightwing and I, Robin, grammar, because always educating. And he says that they're getting there. You know, they, Aquaman provided the first clue when he recognized Ocean Master. Uh, everything began to add up after that. And then he's got on his screen uh, shots of Luther's team, including Jem in the chair. So Batman seems to have something inside the Injustice Gang's headquarters. And oh, look, there's a, a dummy head with Matches Malone's hair, sunglasses and mustache on it. Hmm, intriguing, yes. And I don't think I noticed that the first few times no. I read this issue. Me and neither. Before I really knew what... Yeah, like, it's a very, very, very subtle, subtle thing. Um, And it's so cool, because Batman goes, Ordinarily, I say we were in trouble, but we have an advantage here. And I think we're really getting to the mission statement of what Morrison was doing with this story. But yep. he goes... Luther still has no idea he's dealing with someone who's as familiar with corporate takeover techniques and he, as he is. Someone who plays the game much better than he does. Final shot, PJ? Ah, we get a shot of Batman sat in his chair at the computer, but he's pulled his mask off. And he just sits there with his hands together and says, Bruce Wayne, let's take him out. I love it so much. But that is the end of the issue as well. Just and, the idea, Oh, it's so good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is... Well, basically, that's the prestige. That's the magic trick that Morrison's done here because he's... We've had a whole damn issue of Luther talking about... And again, it's a very Morrison-y kind of idea. Like, how can we do a different take on the evil super team... And he's like, okay, it'll all be about a corporate takeover. And Luther's masterminded everything. But the one thing he doesn't know is Batman's secret identity. Yeah. And it's, you go, ah, 
Ah, Lancelot, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's ama- yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's a JLA battle, but it's done through the medium of, of Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne having a, a corporate fight. And it's it's just one of those genius ideas that you're like, why hasn't anyone done that before? And again, like, you know, if, if Morrison weren't already writing JLA, if I was in the DC editorial staff, I'd be like, get this man on JLA. Like, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. It's... And and God, PJ, yeah, this is why this is why this series is remembered and why it's something special. Because it, it isn't just it isn't just that it's well written and well drawn. It's like it's so inventive. Just so much like w- weird things going on. It's it's bizarre. And probably one of the weirdest things about it though is how different it and where it's gonna go in the next issue. Everything is just this whole storyline, so much is packed in. And that's what I was talking about earlier when you, you it's this issue is a lot of quick scenes all stitched together to make this one whole story. You could almost say it it feels like a lot of setup, but it's it's more than that. There's there's a lot more going on here. Um I do think there's there's an element of Morrison had to fit some of the Genesis crap in, in the first part of it, so maybe little bits of it here and there are sort of held over that he would have put in the first issue. But mm. so much happens, and the places it's going to take us to are... You wouldn't see it coming, I don't think, if you were reading this no, go- on a monthly basis. Y- no, you'd have no way of... You'd have no way of anticipating what's coming. Um, and... I, yeah, I, I've read this issue like so many times in my life. I've completely lost lost count. Mm. And reading it this time with you, PJ, it's kind of it is actually insane how much happens in this issue. Like so much happens. It is it is astonishing how much got squeezed in. It's it's an issue of JLA where Green Lantern sucks up a huge chunk of ocean and sharks and dumps them in the sea elsewhere and you've forgotten that several pages later because of the next big thing that's happened yeah it's like i and i, I guess Mor- morrison is sometimes criticized for for packing in a bit too much like for for kind of like overloading a story and i've got to say like this is an example where he balances it perfectly i think because there's a lot going on in this story and it doesn't have the clean kind of thoroughfare that something like um, the Heaven on Earth story had. Yeah. Which was just aliens are attacking. A plot, B plot, the moon's falling into Earth. Like that was that was it. Yeah. That's all you get. There is like, this is really bitty because there's this scene, this scene, this scene. And yet it doesn't feel disjointed. Like, it all feels like it's part of something bigger. Yeah, it all holds together. And I would say like he's got the balance perfect in, in that I think one more detail, one more little plot element would be too much and would tip it. He's found the line and he's walked exactly up to it and stopped on it perfectly, I think, with this issue. Yeah, because um, because I... I We'll get to it in time, but I, I personally feel there's a couple of moments towards the end of this arc where... I think he almost had too many ideas and not quite enough time to let them breathe. But well, the last issue is is more pages. Part six of Rock of Ages is, is a larger sized issue. 
Interesting. Is it really? Yeah. Interesting. I don't think it's double sized, but it is definitely bigger. I can't. I don't have page numbers in my book, so I can't tell you exactly how many pages it is, but yeah. Okay, that is bizarre. No, okay, I'm curious about that because right now he's he's balancing it very well, I feel. And we know, and again, I'm very excited for what's about to come because I think it gets, now he's done all the setup, you know, because we've got all these things set up. We know where all the pieces on the chessboard are. What follows is is kind of more streamlined because we know, like he's he's got everything ready now. And then this kind of incredible ad- adventure is about to begin, for lack yeah. of a, a better word. Yeah, everything has a bit more space to breathe in the, the following four issues uh, that make up the story. It's all given a bit more space and a bit more time to linger on it and fully take it in and understand it. Um, yeah, but it is, it's crazy how much happens in this issue that certainly by the end of the trade I'd forgotten. That Batman moment at the end always stayed with me. Um, that's probably the key moment from Rock of Ages that always stays with me is the Bruce Wayne, let's take him out. But so many other things in there, it's like, oh, wait, yeah, that did happen. It's interesting because when um, when Morrison started his Batman Incorporated run, it opened with an oversized kind of, kind of like an issue zero, but kind of like more like a, I don't know what you'd even call it, like a prestige kind of yeah. storyline. Uh, drawn by David Finch, which was basically setting up the new arc and like the mysteries they're going to face. And um, it ends on a panel. And bear in mind, this is like from kind of, I want to say like 2012 sort of time. Hmm. It ends on a panel, which even then people were like, this is like that panel from JLA. Oh, really? Because it, it's a shot of like Batman leaning in his chair, kind of like arms like hangs kind of steepled in front of him and everyone was going like oh this is like this is like that moment in jla this is like I, I, frankly it's, this is, the jla moment is better because it's kind of crazier and more mm. more uh, iconic but it clearly did make a bit of an impact because yeah it was still being referenced like well 15 years later or however however long it was it's um the Wizard magazine is one of the ones I remember. Their JLA special. It was one of their top twenty moments from Morrison's run. Was that moment? So, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that'd be fun to track down. Actually, I've I, I've never I've never read that article, but yeah, God, I, like if I've you're still doing got tw- it in in the next room. I'll, I'll I'll make sure I have it with me next time. <laughs> when oh, but yeah, that'd be cool. Actually, I was going to say like you know when next I see you, but frankly. Who knows? Who knows if we'll ever see each other in person again at this rate? Next time we talk, so in an hour. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, PJ, believe me, this is, I, uh, <laughs> you know, not that I don't enjoy talking JLA with you because we started a podcast, but like, even I may need a bit of a break after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much awesome to fit in. Um, do you have any final thoughts, PJ? Anything we've we've we haven't covered yet? Um. No, not well. There's a lot to say, but there's a lot to come, I guess. So it's 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 nice to see Robin. It's nice to see Robin briefly. I think that's his only appearance in the storyline. So uh, I I do like it when they just cut to the Batcave, and you know, Robin's just there living his life, doing his stuff as well. That's quite cool. I think it's interesting because out of all of them, out of all of the current leaguers, 
Batman's probably got the most interesting private life, for lack of a yeah. better word. Maybe like maybe closely followed by Superman, but like a a recognizable supporting cast. And yeah, you can cut to the Batcave in the pages of JLA and just automatically know what's going on. Yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just flipping through the book to see what comes next, and and oh my god, I can't wait! <laughs> You're just getting caught up, caught up in the excitement. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, because we're clearly already anticipating a future, future amazing, amazing content. Uh, let's call it there, eh? Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds Why not? good. Okay. Okay. So a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover art, which still continues to dazzle. And to Elliot Red for composing and performing our stupendous theme tune, Justice. And uh, if you enjoy hearing PJ and I ramble on about JLA, ramble on about um, our, our memories of a, 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 a halcyon age, because uh, clearly we live in, <laughs> clearly we like nostalgia, uh, you can follow us on the social medias, and our details are in the description. I don't have anything to add to that, really. <laughs> no, PJ, um, the king of the sign-off, who's never disappointed, would you do the honours and say goodbye in your own unique fashion? I shall. I shall. I'm going to today do it in the medium of mime. Gasp. There we go. Gasp.